This is Island Waves. You're listening to Something to Talk About, a series on everyday people and giving them a voice into their lives. Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward. Welcome to another episode of Something to Talk About. I'm Virginia Winter, and it is my pleasure to welcome today's guest in episode two as we journey along the corridor of life with Joel Norman Shiver, journalist, broadcaster, celebrity, lawyer, people's lawyer, humanitarian activist, nature-loving father, and grandfather. We're here today with our guest, Joel Norman Shiver. Thank you, Joel, for taking the time and energy to talk with us and sharing your life's journey and your paths. And uh, when we left off with you taking a huge leap into the judicial world as a young father, you heeded your calling from a very successful career in radio broadcasting, theater, all the way to law school. And you worked with various legal aid and PD offices uh, through school. Yes. You passed the bar. What took you to full steam ahead public defense in the judicial system all the way from North Georgia to American Samoa and back? Well, that's a long story. But anyway, uh, you know, I, you know, as a lawyer, I had a gratifying career. But as on the radio, you know, it was just fun and gratifying, you know. So I got into into defense work because when I started law school, when I applied, I didn't have any idea about what kind of law I wanted to practice. But the university carries uh, has a course for credit called uh, Indigent Defense Clinic, and uh, so I took that. Uh, because of my situation, I was made up my mind that I was just going to go through the summers as well. I wasn't going to take the summers off. So uh, that's what I did. And I just, I mean, when I did my first interview, uh, you know, I was sitting across this guy who was telling me my story. And I was just, I mean, it was a profound revelation. Kind of your of aha that. moment. Yes, exactly. This is what I want to do. That's how I got into indigent defense. I did spend about two and a half years in federal court doing plaintiff's employment discrimination. I even tried a case, week-long case in Atlanta at the federal courthouse over there. Public defender was always calling me. Now, I hadn't made very good friends, more or less, with the director of the, of the public defender's office. And I could not get hired. But finally, they let her go. Then I got hired. So there was obviously a bias there. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, well, it was. It, that's just what it was. Or paying dues, Joel. Yeah, that's fine. But, you know, I was uh, I was in trial in the courthouse in Atlanta when something big happened. Um, but we went to lunch. And then when we came back, there was all kinds of security to get back in. It was unusual because something, I can't remember what it was. I don't think it was 9-11 because that was, uh, yeah, that was what I was at, uh, at at the public defender's office. Uh, the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, I think. yes. I started at uh, public defender's office in July in uh, 1994. When did you pass the bar? What year? Well, that's that's a cool story, too. Because I'd gone to school 
through the summers. But the rule is to take the bar, you have to have completed two-thirds, some percentage of your legal education, law school, okay, before you're eligible to sit for the bar. That meant back at that time, if you were a law student, you started studying to take the January bar. Bar exam is done twice a year. Now, it's because I went through school, I had all the credits I needed. So I went, I took the bar at the end of my second year. And I already knew that I'd passed by, the, by graduation, you know. So I hit the ground running. Okay, but, I have a question. By passing the bar before you graduate, does that give you licensure to practice law? No. You need the the sheepskin and passing the bar to be able to get to go. Yes. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was sworn in into the bar in the middle of my uh, third. Well, actually, it was the end of my third year. I I finished school in December, where typical graduation is in June, you know, because I had a family and I didn't want to prolong my absence any longer than I had to. So that's why I went, you know, went straight through like I did. So I remember being sworn in. I don't even remember what year class I was in, but here I am. So, and you still have your license. Yes, I recently went inactive. Island Waves. Something to talk about is a series on everyday people and giving a voice into their lives. This series is dedicated to James David Withers, friend, mentor, author, and poet. And also to Shirley Eckhart, composer of our theme song, singer-songwriter, and namesake of our program, Something to Talk About. This is Joel Shiver, and I listen to Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. I'll tell you, my, my 10 years that I spent at the Public Defender's Office in Athens were just wonderful because each of us lawyers were assigned two to three law students every semester to supervise. And so I enjoyed that role as kind of a mentor to the law students. And the funny thing about that, and I know this was me too, when people come over there to do the clinic for the first time, because there's just so many different paths a case can take, can possibly take, they just walk around with their mouths gaping open with confusion. But after they get a year under the belt, they come back and they practically feel like they own the place. <laughs> and that's that's the natural evolution of things. And, you know, that's part yes, of them yes, knowing yes, their yes, place yes. in the beginning, too. I went, I remember distinctly, you know, how do they know all this stuff, you know? Yeah, I, I went through the same thing. I was, I was seeing my reflection in their faces. Do they look at you like the adult in the room because these are undergrads going into law school, or how did that go for you? Uh, well, these were law students. They had you can't uh, enroll in that course until you've completed your first year. So, yeah, these were already law students, and uh, one of those, one of my best friends, my best student, became one of my best friends. You know, the with all the choices coming out of law school, passing the bar. 
doing well and exceeding your own expectations, why the path to the public defender's office versus private practice or corporate law or with a big firm where you would have a corner office and be making six figures from the get-go? Well, I'll tell you what, I never entered law school with that idea. All throughout my law school, I wasn't going for one of those jobs, you know. I had uh, people in the class ahead of me who were driving Porsches when uh, I finished law school, you know. But anyway, no, it was that first interview I did at the public defender's office. I was hooked. I was into that big time. Great way to learn criminal law. I don't know how many trials I had when I was trying misdemeanors. I won probably 75% of my cases. That's a that's an excellent record. It's an amazing record. And then I got moved to Superior Court, and I started on a winning streak, but they quickly got tired of losing to me. And so they stopped making offers on cases that I knew I couldn't win, you know, slam dunks. Was that because you were I, making prosecution look bad? The DA? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah that's right. Political. Uh, That highlights the importance of the job I had. My job was to defend the rights of my client. Can we walk along the corridor taking you up the ranks in the public defender's office to the point where you are now running the, and correct me if I'm wrong, is it the North Georgia Judicial Circuit Public Defender's Office? Yes, it's uh, the Northern Judicial Circuit. 2003, the Georgia legislature passed the Indigent Defense Act, and they just simply persuade their clients to plead guilty, irrespective, not knowing anything about the facts of the case. There was, there was a series of articles, especially in the Atlanta paper, and uh, it was picked up by, you know, numerous other news agencies around the country. And so it was a really, really a big embarrassment for the state of Georgia. A bunch of right-minded people, including a former chief justice of the Georgia Supreme Court, got together and drafted this bill that would try to stop that kind of practice. And they created the Indigent Defense Practice Act, and they funded it with some money that would allow various there's, there are like 49 judicial circuits in the state of Georgia. Some of them are one-county circuits. You have the five counties uh, in the North Georgia uh, Judicial yes. Circuit, didn't you? Yes, I did. And you know what? For years, I had seen my former law students going over there just be overwhelmed. I mean, it was just, it was an impossible job to do. They were poorly funded by those individual counties. And their workload was unbelievable. When the Indigent Defense Act opened up and the state was going to start pumping money into these circuits that were grossly underfunded, you know, that's when that, I applied for that position and I got it. And people asked me, what the hell are you doing? So was your office in Elberton, Hartwell County? When I first took the job, my office was in Elberton in, in a house, the district attorney owned. Just let that sink in. And uh, I said, we had to get out of there. Shortly after that, I don't remember exactly how it came down, managed to move the office to Royston, which doesn't have a courthouse. It's in Franklin County, but it's more centrally located to the five the courthouses in the five counties we serve. So, well, I hired, you know, six, I had six lawyers, you know, I had turnover, but always had six lawyers. And I was you know, because of its proximity to Athens, I was able to attract some good talent from Athens. 
to work in there with the, you know, the state's infusion of funds. And I had one lawyer for each county. Well, I, and I took one county myself and I had to, and that was a busy county on top of all my job duties as administrator. I left that office in 2012, I think August of 2012. And shortly after that's when I went to American Samoa, and we'll probably get to that in a minute. I started, I was helping a friend who was in private practice in Tacoa because, I mean, her popularity, it got a mighty, she was just covered up and just could not handle it all. I worked with her for a couple of months. I just couldn't. I had been through this incredibly traumatic experience in my office. The thing is, when that Indigent Defense Practice Act was passed, one of the provisions of the act was mindful of the various circuits' rights to some local control. The rule the rule was is that people from that circuit would interview people and and you know submit their names to Atlanta uh, to hire. And I didn't make a lot of friends among the judges over there because I'm, we're talking rural Georgia here. Plus, I had all these large. We were winning a lot of a lot of our cases and making the DA's office look bad. There was a stretch there, but uh, a little less than a year long where we won twenty. No, where the DA's office conviction rate was like 24%. That's outrageous because the DA's office ought to have about a 95% conviction rate because they get, they're the ones who pick the cases that go to trial. You know? But didn't you and say they, at one point that they were just taking all the cases and going to trial instead of pleading them out just for quantitative optics? It got to that place for me in Athens where uh, the DA's just stopped making me deals on cases that they knew I could not win, thereby compelling me to go to trial. And of course, I got, you know, I lost because, you know, the DA wouldn't make me any kind of reasonable offer. And uh, plus, I had clients that demanded to go to trial, even though some of them shouldn't have done that. But that didn't happen in the Northern Circuit. The Northern Circuit refused to look at their DA's office, refused to look at their cases and do any substantial evaluation of it. That's why they put all kinds of crap cases up that we kicked their butts on up one side and down the other. They just failed to exercise their discretion. So that's one of the things that our office did. You know, we held them to that. Right. But do you think a lot of it, again, is status quo for optics? Like we have this really great police report. You know, we we don't stand for any BS. We're going to go in there. We're going to clean up crime and then leave it to the professionals to sort it out or take them to court or lock them up. Do you think that's what it's about politically uh, motivated to garner favoritism with voting people, voters? Well, that that is certainly a part of it. Um, Absolutely, that's a part of it. And the district attorney was very popular in the circuit. Wait, let me guess. Did he run on a platform of tough on crime? No, he just went on a platform that he'd been doing this for so long, he just needed to keep on doing it. Uh, no, don't change horses midstream. I got him unelected because I kept stats. I provided his opponent because he, he had really done me wrong on a case, really done me wrong. I was mad at him. And you lived to so, tell about it. So, yeah, but I mean, it's always, always going to be a pit in my stomach, you know, thinking about how that take case was done. But how they did that case. So I provided his opponent all my stats, and they didn't look good for that DA. He came in here and got elected. Now, 
VA had done me wrong, was out of job. But I mean, it didn't matter. His family's wealthy anyway. Young guy they they put in there, elected to put in there was is a, uh, a gung ho go getter. One of the points I was making, points I was making is that in the Indigent Defense Act, it left the control to the individual circuits to pick who the chief would be. But because of what I did. Well, the, the bar rules say no two lawyers in the same office can represent clients who have conflicting interests. That's it. It states that very simply. Being a public defender is a different kind of animal altogether. Just because you a lot of, you have a law degree and you have yes several years in practice, unless that practice was in a public defender's office, it's a it's a different breed. The legislature put a, a dumbass mule trader Republican in to head our office. He got the job as a consequence of his being a state legislator in the House of Representatives. And it was a political favor. Well, he didn't, he don't know crap about being a public defender. So this was about 2008, 2009, when the country went through that big recession and the state of Georgia lost a lot of. Income revenues, that's the word, revenues, because of it. The uh, governor was trying to compel all the state agencies to cut their spending wherever they could. So this this new director of the Energy Defense Agency statewide sent out an order saying that public defenders will have to start representing conflicts. The same one lawyer in the office cannot represent both, So, but another lawyer can, and you can guard against any conflict or whatever by erecting a Chinese firewall, as they call it. I don't know why they call it that, but it, it amounts to basically everybody keep their own files locked up. So anybody handling a conflict case couldn't get access to it. But that, you know, that's BS. And I told them... And very subjective. Oh, yeah. But, you know, that is directly contrary to the bar rules. You get disbarred for doing that. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't, you know, I wasn't about to subject my lawyers, my young lawyers, to that kind of she's making nothing like that. So I just flatly refused to do it. And I didn't I there was I had one lawyer who was really, really very experienced. So I didn't have to worry too much about her cases. But I'd be damned if I was gonna put that onus on my young lawyers. Well, didn't you sort of mitigate that by becoming part of the committee or the task force that sat the ethics Judicial for Lawyers uh, Ethics Committee that defined all that, including the conflict of interest? Well, I didn't. No, I did not become a part of that committee. After after my actions and refusing it, and, and I engaged with a significant conver- conversation with all the other circuit public defenders. One of the things I did was I was in, it was Yahoo Groups at the time. You know, I had started a group about canoeing. Uh, I had a lot of members that group. Uh, Was that the days of the river tripper? Yeah. I I used to enjoy your stories and your postings. Anyway, I started one for the public defenders and made it private. Nobody, not even the director of the Atlanta office, who was not a circuit public defender, that is the head of the office, could join that list. It was just exclusively 
for us to discuss our situations. You know, and I caught a lot of flack because I argued like hell why it was wrong to represent conflicts. So I got in a lot of trouble. I'm I'm not a, a, in the least bit ashamed of what I did. No. I did the right thing. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Joel, but I, I could have sworn we talked about this where you said that you, you had some influence in, in writing or rewriting the ethics uh, laws w- with regard to conflict of interest for a lawyer. Well, here's, here's what, what may have happened. is because of my actions, the legislature rewrote the law by appointing the circuit public defender to say that not on, no more will the counties put forth a name. The counties would put forth three names, and the state office would decide which one of those got the job. That was directly at me. You know, it, so I feel bad about that because that was a good system. Because when I took that job, that office had been run by the county attorneys for the various counties in the circuit. And I kept them on as my quote-unquote informal board of directors because, you know, every year I had to go in front of each county and ask them for money. And having the county attorney there on my side helped, but didn't help all that much, I'll tell you that right now. What made you want to leave all of that and go to American Samoa? What was the, the gateway for that and the impetus for that? Well, you know... I had a very successful record. My office had a successful record. We had a great office. For example, I only posted ever posted one ad in the newspaper about a job opening, and only have ever had one response to that post. We had a great office. We were we were a team. My performance was unquestionable. Okay, very confident. One of the best records in the state of all the 48 or nine county uh, circuits in the state. After I did what I did by refusing to take conflicts, they started coming after me. They started going around to my county jails, and I had they being who the Atlanta. I'll just say Atlanta. The head office in Atlanta. The office charged with the responsibility of overseeing all the various circuit public defenders offices. So, so they were getting pressure Atlanta. from somebody. Well, I mean, they were getting pressure from the governor to reduce their cost. And the way they wanted to do it was stop having to pay outside lawyers to take conflicts. And instead, we would handle the conflicts in-house. So they wouldn't have to pay that money out uh, of those Ah, that lawyers. makes sense. Now, why? Because I, I couldn't understand why. I didn't make it very clear. I'm sorry. No, yes. no, no. And it wasn't your fault. It's Now it comes, the chickens come home to roost. Yeah. You know, I refuse to do that because... The rules explicitly prohibit that, you know, in-house conflict. So, no, I wouldn't do it. And so they started coming after me. And I had devised this system where our clients in the various jails, I provided forms for the uh, various sheriff's department to hand out to their inmates, uh, who were our clients, for the inmates to correspond with our office, you know, with the explicit instructions, and it said it on the form, it says, do not talk, say anything about this case, you know, that would, that involves any facts of the case or anything. I can't remember what, what I worded it, but uh, it worked. And so apparently, well, I, at least one of the counties kept their copies of those notes filled out by their inmates that were sitting on. And the Atlanta 
office was going around to these sheriff's departments collecting these notes. And, you know, there were there were there were all kinds of things in those notes, apart from anything that would be outside of the attorney client privilege. Why were they doing that? I am doing what's supposed to be done. It's the Georgia Public Defender Standards Council. They set the standards for how we run our offices. That was to combat the uh, meet them and plead them that was happening before. But they, you know, I embarrassed all kinds of arguments with my fellow public defenders around the circuits, you know, and because uh, they did not embrace your sense of ethics and honesty. Exactly. And, and they don't you know, want and to I'm change. Poor, and they don't want to change. I gave them, right. They don't want to rock the boat, you know. Well, if it ain't broken, they don't, don't wanna, fix it. And hey, we're all doing well. And it's been that it's yeah. been done that way for years. Why not continue? Right. Well, they didn't want to endure Atlanta's wrath. Right. And as you well know, as you well know, you lived and breathed that. Yes. You're listening to Something to Talk About, and we'll be right back after this. This is Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. You can now take us along with you on Podbean, Spotify, Anchor, and Facebook. Download the free apps and take us along with you every place you go. Listen to us on your phone, your tablets, your watches, your devices, your earpods, or whatever your listening pleasure is. This way you can bring us along with you anytime, day or night, and hear all your favorite shows right here on the Island Waves channel. Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island, with your favorite programs such as Night Moves, Storytime with Nana Anna, Inside the 46th Parallel, The Book Nook, Country Roads, Morning Music, Mid-Morning Musical Melange, Something to Talk About, Jazz Flavors, Polkas and Pudogies, Classical Gas, and much more to come. Tune in to Island Waves for all your favorite programming and take us along with you wherever you go. You can follow us on Podbean, Facebook, Spotify, and Anchor and take us along with you wherever you journey so we can go together.
So be sure to tune in and follow Ivan Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. And we're back with today's guest, Joel Shiver. Anyway, there were about eight different issues regarding the necessity of meeting with your client early on. As a matter of fact, one of the rules were we had to meet everybody who was arrested in the circuit within seven, well, around the state, within 72 hours of their arrest. So we can jump right in there, get the case early and, you know, get to working on it. I had a lot of conflicts over there in the Northern Circuit. It was the same people getting in so much trouble over and over and over again. So what I came up with to deal with that is I hired one lawyer to represent two counties as a public defender, you know, as a conflict defender, another lawyer to represent two other counties, and one of the lawyer to represent one county. I still ran way over budget because of the number of conflicts. And that's one of the things they came down on me about because of the number of conflicts I declared. Questioning my decision and to judgment. call conflict. And judgment. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. And I just wasn't going to put up with that. But anyway, they came after me. And I argued with my other public defenders over that group that I formed on Yahoo Groups. Nobody was encouraging me. Nobody was taking my side. Not a one of them. I had two that vehemently argued against me. What the Atlanta office wound up doing was certifying a letter to the Georgia Supreme Court asking them, can two lawyers in a public defender's office represent clients with conflicts because it is a public defender's office as opposed to you know, being a private practice where, you know, it's forbidden to do that. And the and the Supreme Court came, they met en banc. That's every one of the justices. Every one of them met en banc to decide that question. And they came back with not just a no, but a hell no, you know. That um, is surprising. I didn't think it would go that way. It went that way. And they 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 addressed every one of the single reasons I named why it was important to get a lawyer to that person as quick as we could. Now, that had been a vindication to you. Well, it was, but I mean, who knows about it? (laughs) Well, who knows about it? And that still does not prevent any long arm of uh, retribution, if you will, or punitive action by your superiors. Oh, absolutely not. I did have one circuit public defender that acknowledged that I prevailed my position, but nobody else said anything. No, and at a time where they did not want you to be right. Right. Well, you know, I, I rock the boat. They don't like a being in a rocky boat. You're preaching to the choir there, dear friend. <laughs> nobody like nobody no, nobody likes a boat rocker, especially without a life jacket. I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know what you do. So was that what <laughs> was that what? In, in, now, in, a, in an indirect way, though, you have to learn how to temper yourself. Uh, as you know, as we get older, we don't fare so well when the boat rocks. When yeah. um, So is that what sort of brought you along the path to seek out doing public defender work in American Samoa? I'm trying to still see yeah. where that progression came from. Was it out of dissatisfaction of where you were? Did you feel like your hands were tied, that... It was two steps forward, three back. I mean, what was your thought process in going from what you were doing uh, to American Samoa to do it? Well, I was just burnt out. You know, the job itself is a burnout machine. 
But then with the added pressure put on me from the Atlanta office that just spun my head around, you know, it just, you know, we were, we were appointed for four year terms. And so when it came to appoint me for my third term, I said, I didn't put, I put, I took my name out of the ring because the law had changed. Now the, uh, circuit was to submit three names to Atlanta, and Atlanta would choose which one of those three became the circuit public defender. Now, you know, I already said that uh, those people in Atlanta have no idea what it's like to, you know, be a public defender. And plus, let's add that they were less than pleased with your your victory of morals, so to speak. Yeah. So, you know, I I just, you know, I just said, I'm not, I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, it was it was a righteous career. I had a righteous career, total of eighteen years doing that. You know, and I made a huge difference in a lot of people's lives. It yes, wasn't for corporate it, law. It wasn't for the six or seven figure salaries. It wasn't for no. the glass office in the ivory tower. It was to make a difference. Yep, and I did. You know, and you I won did. Some, I won some good cases, major cases. Shortly after that, now. While I was with the with law school, the legal aid clinic, I had known two lawyers who had each gone to the South Pacific. One went to be a government attorney uh, for one of the small islands in the South Pacific. But I had also heard of people going to uh, American Samoa to be on the public defense clinic down there. Uh, uh, the clinic, it was the law office. You know, they had to follow the Constitution. They're an American protectorate, you know, and everybody had to be able to have a lawyer even if they couldn't afford one. I got to thinking about that. You know, before I couldn't see, I, first of all, I, I rejected the notion because I was really happy in the job I had. But then after I'd been out of it, you know, and I knew my head was so scrambled, I just had to get away to smooth it over. I uh, went to, I applied to American Samoa and uh, got the job. And American Samoa paid my airfare, paid to ship my belongings down there. When I had to have hip surgery while I was down there, they paid to have me come back to the USA to have the surgery done here, paid to have me go back there. That was, that was that. But the island, the Polynesian culture, just blew me away uh, when I got there. I, I had some, I had success down there in one of the most photographed places in America. Small when these cruise ships come in there, and they they had about I don't know nine to twelve cruise ships a year stop in there to let people see the tropical island. One of the most photographed places, Fatuma Booty. Samoan culture is just another thing altogether. They're big, tall muscular, well, I'll say athletic with a caveat. The Smolans are highly competitive. They had seven high schools, and they loved football. Who hires you? Is it the U.S. government, or is it their government? How do I it's, Walk us through it's that. It's their government. And they it's need, their government. And, and why lawyers from the states versus lawyers from American Samoa? Do they not have well, any? Well, for all intents and purposes, no. Now, there are a few down there, but none of whom are interested in doing independent defense work. Oh. So uh, are they, uh, is it just from the U.S. that they harvest uh, lawyers, or is it global? How does that work? Well, I think they take anybody from anywhere, if you're qualified, you know. Um, that was a huge step for you, from not just 
the offices that you were working in, but from from Georgia to go from North Georgia to American Samoa, that that's a big leap, and that's a very courageous one. Yeah, but I needed I needed the respite from uh, my tumultuous life here, and it was and it was indeed that I was warmly welcomed down there. The trials are conducted in both Samoan and English. There's an interpreter there who repeats every word anybody says in court in Samoan. The court is held in English, but there's a Samoan interpreter there because you know a lot of people on the jury don't understand, don't can't speak English. And did you find it to be uh, a fair judicial system? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, um, yes, it was gratifying. So it was the, very gratifying. So tell us about the experience. You you come there, there's an office. Are you head of the office or are you just one of the public defenders? What's the whole process there? Well, I was just a staff attorney. I can't remember. I think we had three attorneys and the head of the office was an attorney whose parents were from American Samoa, but had moved to Hawaii where he went to school and got his law degree. He was kind of upper class in Samoa too. So we had also an, a lawyer for juvenile court. My first jail visit blew me away. There was no lock on the gate. In other words, if somebody wanted to leave that jail, all I had to do was go to the door, open it, and walk out. And yes, but I bet they, they didn't have a whole lot of people that were doing that. They did not. And I'll tell you, another thing I saw was one of the inmates was tending to a garden they grew. He was out there with a pocket knife, a big old pocket knife. I could see him from where I was doing interviewing with the clients. I could see down to the garden. It was just below us. I mean, it wasn't very far away. And he had a damn pocket knife. That's unheard of. But it's just, I mean, the culture is just beautiful. What was the median crime there, if, if one could ask a question like that? Well, aggravated assault. A lot of them were not very reluctant to uh, not put a machete in someone's head. But that was also part of their culture and the way of life. And I don't mean that in a, in a mean way, but assimilating to the environment. It's part of the culture. It's part of the culture. Yes. An eye for yeah, an eye, well, a tooth the, for a tooth. And stay off my land. Yeah. I don't bother you. Don't you bother me. But if you do, exactly I'll let right. you know it. That's right. In an environment that's like, correct me if I'm wrong, I've never been there, but from your postings, I could recall it was a, it was a bit of a Shangri-La paradise there, environmentally. Well, it was, but I'll tell you, Americanism, you know, 1900 was when American Samoa became American protectorate. Uh, April 1st. So a, every April 1st is... Independence I'll Day. Yeah. Who, who was it? Uh, or, or Dependence Day. Who who owned it before, or what was it before? Just a territory. An ind- independent nation. There's a group of Samoan islands right there at the edge at the edge of the international date line. They were historically the subjects of a lot of disputes, among a, a number of nations who wanted to establish a presence down there. And so we wound up dividing the islands into American Samoa and Western Samoa. I can't remember all the nations who had controlled Western Samoa throughout its history, but America wanted American Samoa because it has maybe the best harbor in the South Pacific. That was their business down there. That served as the location for a hospital for wounded soldiers, and it was attacked. And when I got there, there was all these remnants of these pillboxes, these concrete structures at the edge of the water who 
were built with guns and, and cannons to uh, discourage any enemy ships from encroaching. They only got fired on one time, and that was from a Japanese submarine on the other side of the island, but it didn't do any damage, and there wasn't much to it. The island is just, yeah, it was enchanting to me. It, I found it enchanting, and I couldn't get enough of the culture. And how long you know, did I made you live there? Two years. You know, I, I've often thought about going back, but now, you know, my, my body just... Uh, Ain't what it used to be, but I would have loved to. I would love to go back. Polynesians are a warring culture. They had war canoes, the long dugout canoes that would hold about 80, 80 people paddling. Uh, every every spring, on they have uh, canoe races. They had a. It was an intense competition with a number of villages, which is Samoa is just kind of pretty much populated everywhere. And they're divided up into little villages. That's and that's when we have seven different high schools. You know, uh, the population is there to support those high schools. But anyway, they would compete against each other, and some of that competition was fierce. I remember seeing a team running, jogging together. Sometime I don't know in in January or something like that, preparing for that race. It was a huge race. These canoes were what were war canoes. Early on, they'd load up, you know, about 80 people in a canoe with that many paddlers and get there fast and travel to another island and get in fights with other people. That was the culture back then. So these these canoes and the canoe race were nod to the history, uh, the tradition of those canoes in that island. But, you know, it, it's not this way now, but back then there was no love lost between them. Various islands. And the way the Polynesian culture spread, I think, I want to say Fiji is where they originally come from, but I'm not quite sure about that. It could have even been the west coast of Asia. But anyway, I mean, the east coast of Asia. They first arrived at Samoa, you know, and this is navigation, primitive navigation, wayfinders, America's Polo. Then they went to New Zealand. Those are the Maoris down there. Then they went to Tahiti, and then they moved to Hawaii. All those Polynesian cultures have the same heritage. But anyway, I just, man, I just love the Polynesian culture. I had some great experiences down there. You know, the culture is, American culture is sinking its roots down into the younger generations. You know, they're having more trouble with young people now than they used to. They're more willing to defy the, their parents. It's it's a sad. I mean, it's just like a it's like a cancer. I mean, I, I you know, it's just what it is. You don't starve to death on a tropical island. There is food everywhere: papayas, mangoes, pineapples, manioc, which is where tapioca comes from, and that's a popular plant all around the Pacific Islands. Plus, the higher elevations. It's a volcanic island, so it does have high elevations where it's significantly cooler up there. They raise vegetables and they raise all the food that they use in the schools. It's it's so cool, you know. And yet Western civilization seems to be reaching its greedy little hand across to create oh, that culture. Yeah, it's a sad thing to see. Needless to say, I went to I went to Western Samoa one time and to have, have these little island hopper airplanes, twin engine, I don't know, 30, 45 minute drive, uh, flight over to Western Samoa from American Samoa. Western Samoa is, their heritage has better integrity. You know, people living over there now 
have more of the conventional Samoan ways, Polynesian ways. How have they avoided uh, the same trappings Amer- the American Samoa side did? Disallowing the influence of Western civilization? Well, that's what American Samoa was. I mean, it's a big celebration. Uh, I think April 1st is, is what's called as Flag Day. So Western Samoa is still not independent. Well, I think they are now. But for much of its history, it was controlled, controlled by various uh, foreign powers. Uh, Germany, particularly, because of the harbor, American Samoa. That's why the Americans are there. It's a it's a magnificent harbor. Does America? Uh, does the U.S. have a, a any military interest there? Not anymore, other than other than as a recruiting office. What about and, a base uh, for silos? No, no. Well, that's good. Not that I'm aware of. But you can see, you know, I mentioned the pillboxes earlier that's scattered around all, all around the island at the edge of the water. But then they had cannons or howitzers up on the hillsides. I mean, they were built for World War II. And since then, they're kept up. I mean, they paint the guns and all that kind of stuff, and the, you know, just to remind them of this part of their heritage. Actually, Joel, I saw that same thing in Puerto Rico, in the ruins. No doubt. Yes. Mm -hmm. How long were you in American Samoa? How long were you, would it be fair to say, stationed there? Were you on contract? How did that work? Yeah, I was under contract. Mm -hmm. And how long? Two years. Two years. So would that have been 2012 to 2014, or was that preceding that? 2013 to 2015. Okay. July of 2013. I got there in the middle of winter. July. But do they have typical seasons as we do, or is middle of winter? Well, they do. They, okay. they do, but no, they're only 13 degrees off the equator. The difference between winter and summer, the sun doesn't come up on a slant like it does further away from the equator. It basically comes up one side and goes right over the head and down the other side. In the summer, it is hot, very hot, and to me, unbearably hot. Practically, but you know, I dealt with it. Hotter than the state uh, of Georgia when, in the summer, Joel? Yeah, that sun has a more intense aspect. It's shining right down on you from over your head. It's intense. But the winter times, and like July's winter, noticeably cooler. It's more breezy and altogether perfect, perfect weather. You know, winter weather down there is perfect. It's it's cooler, it's breezier, you know, it's... But summer, coat of umbrella, wear a hat, you know, something to keep that sun from hammering you over the head. Would you say that tourists go down there in the winter? So do they have a big tourism sector? Yes, but I don't think that's... Uh, that's I don't think that's on a seasonal basis. I think it's all year round. So fishing, farming, and yeah. tourism? Yeah. Yeah, as a matter of fact, speaking of fishing, it is the home to a couple of fleets, or maybe more than that. There is a huge tuna fleet. At anchor in the middle of the harbor is this big ship that receives the tuna that the tuna fishers go out and get. They're kept in in some kind of... Uh, water that's got a lot of salt into it. And so that means that they can keep it below freezing, but it doesn't freeze or whatever. You know, they have a starkest cannery down there. Charlie the Tuna. Of course uh, they do. Of course they must. And, and they have a long line, mainly a sword fishing fleet. Those are ships that let out miles of fishing line with hooks tied onto it. Marlin and of course, tuna and swordfish in the uh, 
grocery department to a grocery store. Buy, you know, marlin steak if you wanted to, you know. So it's fair uh, to say you ate very well. You were well-nourished. You're in paradise. Yeah. What got you? Did you want to renew your contract? Was that not an option that it's, um, you know, a limited stint there? And then what got you to get on that plane and go back to where? You know, uh, something changed in my domestic situation here uh, in this country. I didn't feel I could uh, go another two years, but I certainly gave it some thought. I'll tell you that. There are people that have been there over several years, other lawyers around the island. See, anyway, mine was for two, and I came home after that. You you came home after that. You packed up, you got on the plane, and you came back to Atlanta or Athens? Well, actually, I came back. This, this is what brought me back. I was living in Royston, and I moved to Athens after I left the public defender's office. Jan, my now ex-wife, still maybe my most valuable friend. Well, I was going to say she's a dear friend. Jan moved to St. Louis to be near her daughter. And my daughter, Samantha, was in Kansas City. She did Teach for America at one of the worst schools in the country. Even Scott Simon on Weekend Edition did a feature on that particular school. And while she was there, there were murders of students in their school. It was just rough. But Sam, my daughter, just does it from an overwhelming, compelling place from her spirit. As my return to the States grew imminent, Sam moved from Kansas City to St. Louis. That way, Sam, Jan, and Jill could all be together, and I would come back to my family. And so I came back to St. Louis. But I was I wasn't happy in St. Louis. I couldn't get hired. Well, and it's also a big change from uh, growing up in Camilla, uh, working in in a metropolitan area, if you will, uh, such as you were in, in Georgia, going to American Samoa, and now you're coming back, you know, again, trying to assimilate into the American culture, but a different type of community, to say the least. Yeah, well, what, you know, what I really, really, really wanted to do was get a job at a library, you know, at a public library. I didn't care what the job was, because I had volunteered here at my county library, and my job there was putting books back on the shelves that people had checked in or had left on tables or whatever. Restocking the shelves, according to the Dewey Decimal System. Yes, yes, yes. And so I got to meet a lot of uh, authors through their book. That is, that's a nice reward. You know, I was trying so hard to get a job at a library in St. Louis, and nobody would even bother to return my, respond to my resume. My resume is just packed, you know. Well, they thought you were overqualified. Well, most likely. They was thinking, you know. I've done a lot of cool things in my life. I've had a lot of fun. Done more playing actually than I have working because you know the radio and theater. And uh, I was going to comment theater. on that earlier. That one thing that has been so fascinating about our discussions. You know, you you did not have a boring life. It wasn't monotonous. It was challenging. You were in radio, TV, theater, yep. music, the law traveling out of the country to defend people in other areas. So you put it that way, you know, quick submission is I just can't keep a job. 
<laughs> or a Rolling Stone gathers no moss. <laughs> but no, I, I can't keep. I did. I did keep those jobs. I left them on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's all part of our evolving. Some people are happy to stay and get the watch at the end of 50 years, but I don't, you know, there's different molds and we're not cut from that. Yeah, that's not for me. (laughs) Well, it's not. And and not disparaging those that can, as the nuns used to tell us, never look down on anybody else's position because where would we be if they weren't doing it? So whatever we're called to is, is our path. Well, believe you me, I I don't look down on that culture. I mean, look what I did for a living. You know, I befriended poor people, uneducated people, people who, according to mainstream uh, mores, didn't fit. You know, and without being uh, condescending, I think there are people. Yes, exactly. yes without being well, condescending. Yes. Yeah, what I wanted my clients to learn from me when they look in my eyes is to see that I love them and that you can relate. You know? You know, that's the way it worked. So what got you back to Athens from St. Louis? Well, I was really unhappy in St. Louis. So what gets you uh, back up to Georgia? Oh, okay. Well, I'll tell you. Jan knew how upset I was that Sam had sold my car, my dream car. I mean, seriously. And Jan got online and found another Impala SS. Indy 500 Special Edition in Virginia. She flew over there, bought that car, and brought it back to St. Louis. So when I got back here to St. Louis, she had tied a a red string of yarn to the car, run it from where the car was parked outside into the house, up the stairs, and had it uh, tied onto a door for me to follow that yarn and find what was there. And I can't begin to describe how I felt when I saw that black You must have been overjoyed. And we'll be back with more of Something to Talk About here on Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. This is Gordon Belcher. I listen to Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. He was stranded in some tiny town on Fair Prince Edward Island Waiting for a ship to come and find him A one-horse place, a smiling face, some coffee and a tiny trace A fiddling in the distance far behind him A dime across the counter then, a shy hello, brand new friend They walked along the street in the wintry weather a yellow light, an open door, and a welcome friend, there's room for more. Now they're standing there inside together. He said, I've heard that tune somewhere before it, but I can't remember when. Was it on some other friend's or did he hear it on the wind? Was it written in the sky above? I think I heard it from someone I love. Never heard it sound so sweet since then. Here it is. The little boy says, I'll take your hat He's caught up in the magic of her smile Leap the heart inside him Went and off across the floor He sent his clumsy body Graceful as a child 
He said, there's magic in the fiddler's arm, there's magic in this town. Magic in the dancers' feet and the way they put them down. People smiling everywhere, boots and ribbons, locks of hair, laughter and old blue suits and Easter gowns. Yes, sir. Someone's hat's left hanging on the rack Empty chairs, a wooden floor That feels a touch of shoes No more waiting for the dancers to come back And the fiddles in the closet Of some daughter of the town The strings are broken, the bow is gone And the cover's buttoned down Sometimes on December nights When the air is cold and the wind is right There's a melody that passes through this town Here it is Something to talk about, and the conclusion of part two of our visit with Joel Norman Shiver. This has been quite an incredible journey that we've uh, enjoyed walking with you, Joel. Wrapping things up, how would you say, circling back around to arriving back on the shores, if you will, or the uh, sidewalks of Athens, Georgia, how has your life taken a turn today? So, Kenny, what year did you get back up to Athens, Georgia? Well, I think, I don't know how how long I was in St. Louis, but I was broke. I had no income, couldn't get a job. I was severely depressed, and I don't blame her, but I guess Jan had had her feel of me being that way. After she'd gone to Virginia and bought me that car, you know. So I came back to Athens, penniless, homeless, and back then I could carry all of my possessions in my car. So I came back to Athens for the good graces of a friend of mine. She had an extra bedroom. That was when I volunteered for at the library because I wasn't working anywhere. Oh, I know what I did. I retired. <laughs> well, that's a memorable event that, that was overlooked. Yeah, I didn't realize it, that uh, I could have retired earlier from the state. I, they would have let me retire at six, retire at 60. Anyway, I retired with Social Security, made uh, enough money to pay uh, pay my friend back. That's going to be a lifelong 
uh, gratitude in my heart for that woman. Absolutely. Well, Joel, yep. this is usually the time in the in the uh, interview where I will ask the person, what advice would you give Joel at age 14 uh, with the wisdom that you know now? Or I would ask, do you have any regrets? But instead, I would like to ask you, how did someone growing up in Camilla, Georgia, with a Southern Baptist family, and correct me if I'm wrong, your, your dad was a preacher? No, but he was a Very serious lay, yeah. layman. Right. Yeah, he had a he had a prison identification card, so he could go into the prisons and minister. Right. So su- suffice to say, white Southern Baptist church. So how did someone yes. growing up in Camilla, Georgia? In a family that is still very, I would say, engrossed, if you will, in in that culture and in their politics, how did how did you emerge with such an incredible social consciousness that not only defies things like prejudice, racism, being, uh, I guess, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, biased to the point where you became the champion and the voice for, say, the the indigent in the public defender's department, and then which eventually took you to American Samoa. I mean, you've lived a very, very fruitful and productive life. I mean, going from, from radio and theater and television and being an advocate for various causes and representing people and all the way through to your lifetime. So how does one walk out of Camilla, Georgia in being raised the way you were to evolve into this person what was your process what was your formula for allowing yourself or did you just never embrace that well that's a wonderful question and one i've uh tried to figure out figure out because yes i was raised in a very very strict southern baptist home i was chief nerd at my high school as a matter of fact my position as chief nerd was unchallenged i mean you couldn't you know, nobody could be a bigger nerd than I was. And now, who, look who's but, laughing now. Well, because of my upbringing, my personality, you know, the joke is, what do lawyers use for birth control? Their personality. Okay, I'm going to have but to give anyway, that one a think, but I think I know where that's going. Okay. Well, anyway, is this? I did my homework, you know, and I worked and I saved my money. Then my second quarter in college, went to school law, but, you know, when my high school's award was the most outstanding math and science student. But I went to start school at Albany Junior College. You know, I was on a path because my family thought I would be a doctor. About the middle of my second quarter, I, I had some kind of an epiphany. epiphany. Yes. Some, something of an epiphany that I realized this is not what I wanted to be doing now. So I changed my major to radio, radio TV, film. As did I. But I was, I was working 30 hours a week. I worked my way up in radio, TV, film, theater, in school with a bang. What oh. advice would you give young people starting out today, Joel, knowing what you know now, the wisdom, not so much the career paths, but what, I guess, if you will, spiritual or, or encouraging advice would you give people starting out today? Do what you love. Uh, get proficient. Develop a passion for something you love and you can find somebody to pay you to do it. <laughs> well, that's the yeah. thing. Yeah. Either that yeah. or don't quit your day job and find that passion and something you love and be willing right, to right, right. volunteer for it or work for it, even right. if you're volunteering for yourself. But we all have to pay bills, right? You know, and I'm I'm different. You know, I started working at the Shirley Place when I was in the ninth grade. 
I saved my money. I didn't go out on dates, didn't drink or smoke. Then when I went to Valdosta, I got a job at the NAPA store over there, auto parts, because I, I, I loved auto parts. And we loved working but, and we loved the paycheck. It yes, enabled us. Yes, yes. Well, for one thing, it gave us a sense of independence that we were able to leave our parents' homes and move forward. Right. Without without that yeah. tethering of depend of financial dependence. Well, it, you know, it wasn't that clean a break for me, you know, because I said I went over there in spring and was homesick, got back around my family in the summer. Oh, sure. And um, it was not quite the uh, experience I had. I thought it might have been. Well, once you but, go away yeah. and you live on your own and you come back, it's always going to be different. But I think we always, you know, there's always home and there's always a sense of family. Yeah. For the time being. When I finally, you know, got away for good, that's when I started growing. And I was able to find a passion there, you know, the radio there and the TV program there. Even, you know, I had to take acting classes and set design and all that kind of stuff. That was just so much fun to me. And we got paid for it sometimes. And so that was the extra bonus. We didn't have to work at Napa or at Kmart or do laundry. We were now... Fulfilling our dreams and our goals of being in the industry that we loved. And at the end of the week, there was a paycheck. Win and win. Yes. You know, I count myself extremely lucky in having been able to do what I did. My advice, be diligent, be honorable, have love in your heart to guide your spirit in all your interactions with anything you do and whoever you meet. Now... Those things will allow you to build deep and abiding friendships. And a sense of purpose and a sense of respect and a a self-respect. Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's all that kind of stuff. If you can't do what you like, this is going to sound pathetic. Well, then... Learn to like what you're doing. <laughs> I never thought of it. I was gonna. I thought where you were going with it. If you don't, uh, if you're not doing what you like, move on. But say that again. If you don't do what you like, learn to love doing it. Is that it? Yeah. Learn to like what you're doing. Learn to like what you're doing, or learn that this is not what you want to be doing. Well, exactly. And have the good grace to to but, recognize that and honor it. Okay. Uh, that. But more than to another aspect of advice is uh, to keep your eyes open. Be aware of opportunities that come your way. Uh, again, I say I was lucky because I was so naive. I wasn't, I had no idea about how capable I was. I knew I could do parts, you know, and I knew I could run a camera department at Kmart. A lot of those other things, like applying for the job at the radio station at Clark Broadcasting, I did that with the encouragement of my boss lady at the Golden Pantry. And then it just developed into uh, this magnificent life. I just couldn't believe sitting in that chair that I was doing. I was I was getting paid to do this. You know, it just didn't seem right. You know, I would never admit this to any of our employers, but back then, I would have done it for free. It was just such a wonderful place well, to be. It really was. It, it was just, it was like you were on air and you were floating on air. Yes, yes, yes. I'll tell you, uh, in the similar vein, very similar to what you're speaking of, is that, you know, I had to interview, I had some competition for the uh, public defender's job in the circuit. I was like, fortunate to be the one that was selected. And I told my board of directors, 
I can't believe y'all giving me this much money for something I do for free. <laughs> and did they offer to rewrite your contract? <laughs> no, 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 no. But I mean, it, you know, it was just making the point that uh, yes, yes, how happy I was to have that position. Joel, you and I can go on for days and hours and Can't weeks we? Can't and, we, and, my and still have something. It reminds me of that uh, movie, Best in Show, where the actress says about uh, her husband, she says, we can talk and not talk and still not talk and have nothing to say, but we never are at a shortage of what to talk about or have something to say, which is good. But I, I have one more question that I have to ask you that goes back uh, our entire lifetime together of knowing each other. So I hope you can appreciate the humor. If I, the final question I must ask you, Joel, is this, what's the temperature? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you right now, the thermometer on my porch says it's about uh, 45 degrees. So it's about the same here. here. We're having a lovely day. Uh, for the for the sake of our audience not knowing that joke, uh, Joel and I were on uh, at Clark Broadcasting with just a sheet of glass between the two stations, AM and FM. We were on at the same uh, time slot every day, and typically you would give your audience the, I think it was twice every 30 minutes, you would give them the update on the weather. Also, we used it as filler, so if you're looking at the clock meeting network, you could really pull that out by giving your call letters and saying, WGAU time is 12 noon and the temperature, so you can expand it. And I drove Joel crazy twice every half hour. What's the temperature? What's the temperature? And then one day, I, I know you never grew impatient with me or annoyed, but one day I'd asked you, Joel, what's the temperature? And you wrote on the card that you normally wrote the temperature on and said, make it up. <laughs> Oh, so my. that cured me of bugging you. I never understood why we didn't have our own temperature gauge on the AM side, well, but yeah, FM I mean, had it. You know, we had a certified weather station and on your the yard side. Of the oh, radio that's right. Station. That's right. That's and right. It fed into the FM studio, so that's why I always had the, how I knew what the temperature was. Right. Uh, in front of me all. Fond memories, fond, fond memories of the days oh, of our youth. Oh my goodness, goodness well, gracious. Joel, we will have to talk more and I am still inviting you to perhaps uh, consider doing a show here on Island Waves that we can uh, launch at some time in the future when you're up to it. But I want to thank you for spending all this time and allowing this to be immortalized and captured for perpetuity. Your well, life story, um, your brilliant life I th story. I think I can confidently say I probably had more fun than you did. <laughs> well, we can. We'll, we'll have to uh, compare no, levels I mean, that of was fun. A... I know, tongue in cheek. Yeah. Well, Joel Shiver, it has been our pleasure to have you along on Island Waves, and I hope we have many more conversations together. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I've enjoyed it. I have as well. Something to Talk About is a Door in the Floor production in association with Winterlude Studios for Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. Executive producer and creator, Virginia Winter. Research contributions by Brittany Williams, Tracy Law, and Helen Balms. 
Audio Technical and Director Assistance, Brittany Williams. Post-production, Winterlude Studios, Prince Edward Island. Master Editing, Virginia Winter. The producers would like to acknowledge and thank all of our participants of our series, Something to Talk About, who generously gave their time to be interviewed and share their lives with us. And to Holland College School of Journalism and Mass Communications, particularly to Brittany Williams, Tracy Law, and Helen Baums, and to Lindsay Carroll. Special gratitude of thanks and appreciation to our technical guru and advisor, Dr. Watson Ohms, and to Millie, our loyal canine companion and moral support. Something to talk about is a door in the floor Winterlude Studio production made possible with support from Prince Edward Island Senior Secretariat and the Winter Foundation for Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island.